Thank you so much for being here today. My name is Maaza Siyum. I'm the Partnerships Lead at the African Alliance. It's a real honor to be here as a moderator of this important session on how greed and self-interest have expanded the gulf between the global north and the global south and given a rise to vaccine apartheid. So just a bit of background. This is the first of a series of three webinars on the causes and impact of vaccine apartheid on the African continent that the Health Justice Initiative, the People's Health Movement, and the African Alliance are working on together. The focus of today, as we have said, is greed. The second in the series is titled Divides and is focused on the structural barriers and structural violence within the continent that are impeding vaccine access. The third, titled Solidarity, will focus on how we as Africans can hold our own leaders accountable and galvanize regional and continental solidarity. And my colleague Chiwa is here. Chiwa, if you have the slide available that shows all three webinars, that might be great to just put that up and share on the screen so people can see those dates. Um, or at some point during the webinar, if you could share those in the chat, just so people have that available. So we have some amazing speakers today, and I will introduce them just before the first round of questions. But before I do that, I just wanted to go through a little bit of housekeeping for the session, let you know how it will go, and then give a brief background on the status quo. In terms of question and answers, please, at any point, put questions in the chat. And Chiwa, please chime in if I, um, I see that there's not a question and answer section of the chat, but please feel free to drop your questions in the chat. We will have a first round of questions. Um, unfortunately, Dr. Singer will need to sign off after that first round of questions. Then we will have a second round of questions and then we'll be open for Q&A. At the moment, you are muted, but I believe Chiwa does have the functionality to unmute people later um, if there is somebody who feels very strongly that they want to, to raise their hand and ask a question with their microphone on. So just a bit of background, we called this webinar the 5% webinar series because when we started our brainstorming a couple of months ago, we thought that by now, the percentage of people fully vaccinated in Africa would be at 5%. And the sad irony is that we were flagging how low 5% was but we are still not even at 5% now. So we're going for a low target and trying to have a name for the webinar series that would highlight how low the vaccination rollout was, but we are not even at 5%. So I think everyone who has registered for this webinar is probably well aware of the background, but just to lay some of the groundwork for our discussion, I wanted to go over some key points. More than 200 million people have been infected during this pandemic and over 4.5 million people have died. We know that at least 10,000 people are still dying every day of COVID-19. And 10 whole months after that first Pfizer shot was administered to much fanfare in the UK on December 8th, just 2% of people living in the world's poorest countries have been vaccinated. This while the majority of people living in rich countries are fully vaccinated and millions of booster shots have been administered. So unfortunately, Africa is lagging behind as the continent with the lowest vaccination figures. Only 4.9% of people in Africa have been fully vaccinated. That compared to 35% worldwide and 66% vaccinated in the UK and 73% in Canada. I'm going to try and share my, my screen because sometimes I know that seeing an image sort of helps, um, helps the mind a little bit. I don't know if people can see this, but here is... Um, data from today. Um, can everybody see my slide? Fatima, can you see that? So yes, yes so of Africa versus the world and the US um, and then Germany, the UK and Canada. 
Um, so just wanted to show you all that from today. Um, there is obviously a variation around the continent with three countries that have fully vaccinated over 50% of their populations, that's Seychelles, Mauritius, and Morocco. But the vast majority of countries on the continent are still under 5% fully vaccinated, with some countries, including my own of Ethiopia, at less than 1% vaccinated. So those of us who've been working on this issue for the last year have said and warned that this inequity is not only immoral, but foolish from a public health perspective. Scientists have warned us for months that unless we vaccinate people all over the world as quickly as possible, there is a risk that new variants will bubble up and the very effective vaccines that we have available to us now will no longer be as protective. In 2020, science was the real hurdle that we were dealing with as we worked to overcome this pandemic. This year, the hurdles are greed and self-interest, the greed of pharmaceutical companies and the self-interest and short-sightedness of wealthy countries. So with that background, I'm gonna to turn to our wonderful speakers to help us break all of this down, as well as talk to us about how we got here and hopefully help us brainstorm on a way forward. So I will start with Fatima Hassan. Many of you already know her. She needs no introduction at this point, but Fatima is a South African social justice activist and human rights lawyer. She worked on HIV AIDS medicine access, advocacy and litigation for many years with the AIDS Law Project and for the Treatment Action Campaign, clerked at the Constitutional Court of South Africa and served as special advisor to <laughs> South Africa's former Minister of Health and Public Enterprises. Um, she is the founder and current head of the Health Justice Initiative. She also has one of the coolest Twitter feeds in town. So if you haven't followed Fatima on Twitter, do so immediately. Fatima, thank you so much for allowing me to moderate the session and inviting the African Alliance to be um, part of this great group. So I would like to start with you so you can set the scene for us. I know that just a couple of days ago, you and some colleagues co-authored a piece in Becky Sisa titled An Inconvenient Truth, the real reason why Africa is not getting vaccinated. And in it, it's a great piece. For those of you who haven't read it, I recommend it very highly. You explore and debunk the African vaccine hesitancy myths that are being peddled by Pfizer's very problematic CEO and others. Can you break down the real reasons why Africa is not getting vaccinated and tell us how greed manifests in the story? What impact has this greed had on Africa as it relates to vaccine apartheid? Thanks, and just real honor to be on this panel with Pifa and Kamran and, and Peter Singer. Just really grateful to also be given the first opening shot. And so I think the answer is simple, Maza. It's racism, right? It's because black lives don't matter as much as people in the global north. And I think that's the reason why the global south, which is made up of many black and brown people, uh, have taken so long to be vaccinated. So, I mean, it manifested in the, in the first way already in late 2020, when richer countries basically bought up most of the supplies. Kamran and I have actually written about this with Gavin Yami in the British Medical Journal as well. Uh, we've actually called it a crime against humanity. We said it's a moral state. So a few things happened. The first is that the contracts were signed, what we call bilaterals, by late 2020 already. All of the existing supplies and available capacity was basically bought up and taken up while we were told in the global south to rely on COVAX. And we can deal with COVAX later in terms of its own shortcomings and the lack of volume that it has available for it um, by the end of 2021. So there's been a significant delay in one in the signing of contracts 
or Africa in particular, in the availability of supplies, in the granting of licenses to multiple manufacturers. And then there's been significant delays and shortcomings uh, within COVAX, which was the initiative that Africa was still to rely and depend on. And, you know, we had called out COVAX from last year already. We said this is not going to work because it's still premised on the voluntary cooperation of pharmaceutical companies and you're never going to get enough supplies for the whole world at the same time for a handful of vaccines if you only rely on a handful of manufacturers. And so it goes to the heart of manufacturing capacity, which is, you know, linked to the TRIPS waiver, and, and we can all talk about that later. And so the net result is that countries were either too, too you know, last in line to basically sign their, their own bilaterals, which South Africa did because you couldn't rely on COVAX, or you're basically waiting for a drip feed of supplies from COVAX or a drip feed of supplies from what's called donations and pledges. And we know that the pledges haven't fully materialized. Only 17% of what has been pledged has actually arrived for countries in Africa. So the real reason why Africa hasn't been vaccinated at even 15, 20, 25, 30, 40%, like many other countries around the world, is because simply we haven't had enough supplies. And we didn't have enough supplies when it mattered the most. When the world started vaccinating and when there was this uh, momentum around getting people vaccinated before the anti-vax movement and the hesitancy started building up, we didn't have enough supplies. Our program in South Africa would have been much different if we had supplies from February already. The African Union's um, basically vaccine program for the entire continent would have been different if we had supplies in March already when the contract, for example, with Johnson & Johnson was already signed. So I think timing is an issue. And so it's very easy for people to say Africans can't tell time. That's what they said in the HIV AIDS crisis, right? But now they're saying Africans don't want the vaccine. Africans are anti-science. Africans are 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 anti-vax when in fact we know the genesis of where that anti-vax movement uh, you know is actually emerging from and so it's a really what we call a racist trope I mean Tia and myself um, Tom Mulder and Greg Gonzalez have written about this we said that, that this is basically racism it's disguised racism where you use vaccine hesitancy and the anti-vax movement as an excuse for why it's October 2021 and we still don't have enough supplies in Africa. And we can talk later about why we don't have supplies in Africa, aside from the hoarding and the vaccine nationalism, which is fundamentally, I think, linked to two reasons. So the lack of leadership on the part of most African leaders that has actually forced us into this point, their unwillingness to take on pharmaceutical power, but mostly the greed of the pharmaceutical industry. And, you know, I'm hoping we'll get a chance to unpack that. Thanks. Excellent. Thank you so much, Fatima. So you've actually laid the groundwork very well for the question that I wanted to ask our next amazing panelist, Dr. Kamran Abbasi. Kamran is a physician and visiting professor at the Department of Primary Care and Public Health, Imperial College London, executive director of the British Medical Journal, editor of the Journal of the Royal Society of Medicine, journalist, cricket writer, which I was very interested to see, and broadcaster who contributed to the expansion of international editions of the BMJ and has argued that medicine cannot exist in a political void. Kamaran, welcome. Um, so in February of this year, you wrote another piece, an editorial in the BMJ, where you likened the negligence of some of our elected leaders on the COVID-19 pandemic to human rights violations, manslaughter, or even murder. You made the argument in response to the leaders who refused to take COVID-19 as seriously as they should have, expressing more concern about the state of the economy rather than lowering infection rates. So I wanted to ask you, Kamran, do you think that today that same charge of social murder 
should be applied to pharma CEOs and leaders from the global north who are perpetuating this vaccine apartheid? And how would you respond to people to say that who say that you're being overly dramatic and this is really offensive that you would even suggest such a thing? Mosa, thank you. Listen, um, I'm delighted to be here with you today, but it's a real honor to share this panel with such wonderful speakers. And I'm, it's sad that we're here because humanity has faced the gravest challenge in 100 years. And what's been the outcome? The outcome precisely has been some people have got very, very rich. I think one of the quotes that um, uh, that stuck with me over all of this is that, um, I don't know who said this, I'm somewhere, is that our misery is their jackpot. Uh, and it, you know, there's a lot of us who, uh, and I'm you know, including myself <laughs> as somebody you know, from the poorer half of the world originally, um, who have uh, suffered greatly. Um, and a small number of people, um, some countries have got very rich uh, as a result of this. Um, who's got rich? Well, politi- uh, particularly um, uh, some corporations. I know we're going to talk about corporations in detail during this session, um, but also political allies um, of ruling parties um, in, in many countries around the world. Transparency International have documented a great deal of corruption, um, both uh, that's involved states. Um, uh, you know, from, from every country. And, you know, we've seen that we've had a big controversy around this uh, in the UK, where we are based, where the British Medical Journal, the BMJ, is based. Um, can I take the second one of your your questions first, which is the more general point about uh, this charge of social murder? Now, why did I write that piece? I wrote that piece because it was in sort of February of, um, it, it'd been in my head for a long time. So the, the gross inequality in terms of uh, the differential effects of the pandemic on people from disadvantaged communities, um, ethnic minorities, um, people who live in poor housing or low employment. And this was not just, um, you know, in, in any country. So in any country, we know there are, there are people that are more disadvantaged than others. They were suffering uh, differentially worse outcomes um, than others, but also globally. So globally, the richer countries, yes, they had their problems and some of them done very badly during the pandemic, but even that pales into insignificance compared to the damage that they are, that they are wreaking upon the poorer countries around the world. So there is this gross inequality that we knew we've been battling against for decades, all of us. I think everybody on this call um, has been has been trying to address this problem. And the pandemic, which started off, I mean, I wrote a piece with Ilona Kickbush, Gabriel Lung, uh, Chick Wei, who is the head of uh, CDC in Nigeria, um, uh, and others. And we and the piece was arguing for solidarity. You know, there was that moment at the beginning of the pandemic where we thought there may be solidarity. Is this a really major turning point for the world where the world comes together to address the gross inequalities that we're, we're battling with. Um, and, you know, we didn't say, yes, it's happening. We said, you know, we hope this is going to happen. Uh, but what's transpired is that it, that it hasn't happened. The inequalities have got worse. Um, and people who are disadvantaged, people who are poor in any country and around the world um, have, have been you know, differentially, as I say, affected um, by the pandemic. So, when we, when we, so that's one assumption. I think nobody would disagree with that. All the data support that. The second assumption we need to make here is that uh, people didn't know what to do. Okay, um, 
there is a kind of uh, comp there's sort of a myth an urban myth that's been created about how uh, nobody knew what to do in how to respond to this pandemic um we didn't know that you might have certain restrictions uh, you know at times you might need to have um a, a lockdown or containment i mean that's an extreme thing to do but before that you would need to ha- introduce you know, very sophisticated contact tracing which is run by the public health people in your country you want to try and protect people in vulnerable communities um you want to you know think about controlling your borders all the things that countries like china new zealand south korea taiwan um did they'd learned from previous episodes and they they implemented um you know those those measures this time around who were advocating for those measures you know these things were even done in previous pandemics 100 years ago uh, and, and and major outbreaks previously so none of this was new so the the prem- is that somehow nobody knew what to do and we were learning on the hoof and that's why people have died because you know this is you know what could anybody do about this is sort of a fatalism we had a report in the UK published just this week which um excused everything rather pathetically by saying this was this is fatalism there was nothing that anybody could essentially do about this I mean so uh, that assumption itself is incorrect i mean my very firm view is that, that that it's wrong there's a very long list of things that countries could have done both to protect their populations but equally their international responsibility to other countries more disadvantaged countries around the world and they did not do those things so f- number one you've got a differentially worse outcomes amongst people uh, from poorer communities disadvantaged con- communities in countries and across the world number 2 there are things that politicians and governments and the decision makers in any country could have done and as an international community and these were not done this was not rocket science these were established ways of going about doing things and even if you were unsure about the historical evidence and the historical experience you saw how china responded you saw how south korea responded so even if you were paying attention at all to what happened in january february of 2020 you could see the lessons immediately in your face about what to do now many many countries did not do that to protect their populations or to protect others around the world and the most prominent amongst these are the us uk india brazil some of the big you know powerful nations um and so you put that together and you think well the powerful have let down the weak and the powerless and this you know to me seemed like you know this is how can you not accept responsibility so the third element of this was people were denying responsibility not being held accountable particularly politicians so i want to speak, speak about politicians first i know you want to talk about uh, people who run big companies they were consistently refusing to accept responsibility not being held accountable and hence this piece came together and then you know at the time actually i was rereading the road to wigan pier by george orwell where he he travels around northern england he you know he 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 documents in a very vivid way i mean some of the examples he gives are just so evocative out uh, of his experiences of life and and the living conditions of the working classes in people in england's industrial north and and the mess that, that that comes at you as is that these are conditions that were sort of imposed on people disadvantaged on people from from the working classes that they're sort of powerless in trying to trying to combat them and then that led me to thinking about what engels said 
He's, he coined the phrase social murder, and, and I'll, just, I'll just read it out for you. And he used it to describe the political and social power held by the ruling elite. Now we can discuss what, what, that, I mean, what that ruling elite is. It's politicians, it's kind of people who run the big multinationals. Um, and it, it's the power, political and social power held by the ruling elite over the working classes. Um, and his argument was that the conditions created by privileged classes inevitably, inevitably, those conditions led to premature and unnatural death among the poorest classes. And, you know, whether you're a communist or not, I mean, that, that's a, a, another, another mm -hmm. side to this. The reality of this is absolutely stark. It's absolutely true. And it describes what happened during the pandemic. So I, then I re okay. kind of re rephrase, I'm going to I'm gonna finish in a minute. Yeah. I, yeah. I, rephrase, I rephrase that to say, today's social murder may describe the lack of political attention to social determinants and inequities that exacerbate the pandemic and you know it's also part of the whole building back fairer agenda so that's how it all came about i could go on but i'll pause there okay. <laughs> i know you want to move on thank you thank you yes we want to give uh, fifa a chance to jump in and then peter before he has to sign off as well but we will come back to you for a second round if you'd like to expand a little bit more thank you kamran for that um, so now we have our third amazing panelist, Dr. Fifa Rahman, who is involved on the global stage in the COVID-19 response, representing global civil society on the WHO's ACT Accelerator for access to COVID-19 tools. Her PhD was focused on negotiation tactics, um, and she right now has is supervising students who work on intellectual property and COVID-19 tools, among many other interesting topics. She also has one of the coolest Twitter feeds in town. So if you're not following her, I recommend it highly. Um, so welcome, FIFA. Thank you for joining us. I know you wanted to start us off with a few slides just to lay the groundwork about COVAX and the ACT Accelerator and where the inequity has seeped in. So thank you. Please go ahead. Thanks very much, Marza. And um, yeah, what I'm going to do today is, is talk about how greed, uh, when intertwined with an imperfect global health architecture, is what creates inequity on the whole, right? And uh, it's a combination of the two things. Now, this is a structure of the ACT Accelerator, and I sit as civil society representative on the Facilitation Council on the top. Facilitation Council is basically where the WHO member states sit. And the principles group on the right, which is the heads of the global health agencies, and that uh, happens um, every uh, uh, biweekly uh, on Thursdays and, and where, um, you know, major developments are discussed. So, of course, in considering whether the global health architecture is fit for purpose, let's go through a number of things that have happened in COVAX. Now, this is a September 2021 uh, forecast of, of how many uh, supplies will be delivered or, or in the next in uh, in 2021, and in the September 2021 forecast, it said that uh, further 1.1 billion doses are expected to become available to Covax. So immediately, we did some sort of simple math, and uh, between September and December 2021, that's deploying at least 10 million um, doses a day. So you know this was. Uh, a little concerning for us as civil society on the ACT Accelerator going, okay, what, you know, is this feasible for deployment, right? Uh, and, and unfortunately, we didn't get a good answer to that. So there are some concerns about, you know, the feasibility of getting this amount of doses and not necessarily having the logistics to deploy them uh, further. 
But there are other things that are problematic with the COVAX. And I'm illustrating this story from uh, the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. And I know there's been some critique of this article because the journalists are funded by Gates and the role of Gates was, was not looked at um, as closely. But it also provided several really interesting insights about how countries were treated. And, and this goes back to Fatima's point on racism, right? Now, earlier in the COVID, we had issues with the fact that CSOs couldn't unmute ourselves in Zoom calls with the COVAX facility. You know, so there's a very uh, weird, almost, a vision of what civil society, how civil society works. There were comments about how, you know, uh, we, 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 are, are, we don't want civil society to be disruptive when you're like, okay, that's interesting because that's the exact purpose of what we're for. And arguably, if civil society had been involved much earlier in COVAX, it would be more equitable. But you see as well that the ACT Accelerator is predominantly Global North white-led, right? Which is, for me, a real problem because you lose that diversity and value of Indigenous knowledge in the COVAX, and not just the COVAX, but throughout the diagnostics pillar, therapeutics pillar, and health systems, right? So it's really problematic. But this racism, as you can see from this article, transcends uh, beyond civil society and, 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 and here with LMICs, where you can see that officials found it difficult to get clear information from the COVAX. Uh, and the second arrow, um, the, the relationship with the Libya's COVAX coordinator got a little ugly. Um, and um, the country's request for a meeting with Seth Berkeley was met with silence. The third um, arrow underneath says that COVAX would sometimes just not pick up the phone. So, you know, there's one thing about not being able to consult CSOs um, early enough and meaningfully in, in, uh, in involve them, right? Because we get we still get documents last minute. Sometimes we get documents and it's already version seven in the file name. Um, so, you know, why are we intellectually not involved at the inception of these documents, which which affect the entire world's supplies, right? So it's incredibly concerning, but also you can see that um, there is a lack of respect um, for countries and the, the, the value attached to, to equal intellectual partnership of LMICs. And of course, you've seen um, the article uh, by Tian Johnson, who is in the um, in the audience, and Maaza here uh, on vaccine hesitancy or systemic racism. These are sort of little things that are seeping into our conversations um, uh, uh, on the ACT Accelerator, of course, that, you know, vaccine hesitancy really it, it, it's 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 being used as an excuse, and thankfully those conversations have died down. But it's definitely a, a real problem to be talking about this, uh, and to have Pfizer CEO talk about it, right? Because the Pfizer CEO was like, you know, vaccine hesitancy is going to be way way higher in Africa, and the question is, does this come from data or does it come from prejudice? Um, so it's quite important. I want to quickly go into country absorptive capacity because it's been discussed on the ACT Accelerator a lot. So country absorptive capacity is used to judge whether a country is worthy of X amount of vaccines or less, right? So I have real problems with the use of absorptive capacity because it's not being used to say, okay, let's invest in, in health systems, let's invest in community health workers to make sure we can deploy those vaccines and make sure, you know, homeless people can come to the vaccine centers and, and things like that. 
Absorptive capacity is being used within the COVAX and within uh, your diagnostics pillar as well um, to say, okay, say Ethiopia or, or Somalia or, or South Africa, um, they don't have the absorptive capacity for, say, a million vaccines. So let's give them less. Let's give them 500,000. And it's going to create lots of inequity. And of course, there's lots of other things going on uh, that create inequity in um, treatments as well as diagnostics. And just on the final slide, the manufacturing task force, this slide shows basically what they're planning for the manufacturing task force. Um, this is the last update I got and I'm on the facilitation council and on the principals group. This was an update in June 2021 and it's October now. So I leave you with that uh, to draw your conclusions, but I'm happy to talk more about it later. Thanks. Excellent. Thank you so much, FIFA. Um, I have many questions, but just because I know that Dr. Singer is a little bit worried about his time, um, if you don't mind, I'll shift over to him. And then once he signs off, we can spend a little bit more time on COVAX and the demise of, of COVAX um, in the second series of questions. So Dr. Peter Singer is here and I actually don't see him on my screen. Oh, yep, there he is. You were just hidden. Hi. Um, so Dr. Singer, thank you so much for joining us. Um, Peter is a Canadian physician and special advisor to Dr. Tedros Arharum Gobreyesus, Director General of WHO. Before joining WHO, he co-founded the University of Toronto Joint Centre for Bioethics and Grant Challenges Canada, which funds innovators in Canada, as well as in low and middle income countries. Um, it's a real pleasure to have you here. Thank you for squeezing us in, in which I know is a very busy week for you. Um, I would also like to look back at a piece that you had written um, a few months ago. I saw a piece that you published in the Toronto Star titled, Vaccine Equity Will Be the Defining Challenge of 2021. And this was right at the end of last year around New Year. Um, and at that time, you had said that vaccine equity would require a focus on three main pillars. At that time, you referred to distribution, data, and direction. So now within the 10 months since the publication of that piece, the alarms from yourselves at WHO have become more and more dire with Dr. Tedros going as far as warning that the world is on the brink of a catastrophic moral failure. So I wanted to ask you, Peter, if you had an opportunity to, to write kind of a sequel now, a part, a part uh, two of that piece, would those three pillars, distribution, data and direction remain the same or would you revise them with three different pillars? Thank you, uh, Maza. And let me just start by saying what a privilege it is actually for me to be on this panel. Um, and I really want to show my respect and appreciation to you and to all the other panelists who have done so much important work with truth, with honesty, and with a burning desire for justice. And it really is for me a privilege to be here um, uh, with, with uh, I think, some of the most important voices in the world, if I may say, and I know I'm anticipating your later point about civil society, but that's my um, down payment on that. To, to your question, uh, I think I was right that it was the defining challenge of 2021. And uh, unfortunately, I also think that the world failed. And it's as simple as that. If The most optimistic thing you can say is we're failing so far. In a sense, uh, you know, the vaccine equity issues. And I don't think about them as vaccine equity anymore. I think about them as vaccine justice because what's really at stake is the structural issues underlying the intellectual property, but then also uh, Fatima and her opening remarks went to much deeper structural issues, which I think is very important uh, to continue to uh, surface. Um, uh, I think it's a triumph of, uh, of science and uh, a failure of, uh, of humanity. 
is what we're seeing here. And with regard to the three Ds, uh, direction, um, distribution, data, uh, you know, I would uh, I would channel. Uh, well, well, first, let me just say, direction was about leadership. It just happened to start with a D, and leadership has proven very important. And in some cases, it's been, um, I think, very strong, like the voices on this panel. And I also have to say, I feel very proud to be working with my friend and brother and 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 colleague and boss Tedros, who I think has been a voice of uh, moral clarity. You you quoted his. Uh, point on catastrophic moral failure, he has actually used the, the word greed, uh, very unusual for a director general, supported the IP waiver. He's done things that I feel very proud of, and um, it's, it's a real privilege to work with him. That's the leadership piece. But on the direction and data side, uh, I think my mistake was to focus too soon and too early on the, on the distribution and not enough on the supply. And, you know, I guess to channel James Carville's It's the Economy Stupid, if I were talking to myself now in the sequel, I'd say it's the supply stupid. And um, I think we've learned some important lessons about supply. Uh, firstly, um, that solidarity uh, works in abundance. It may not work so well in scarcity. Uh, secondly, that... Um, uh, you know, there is a supply chain of vaccines, but there's also a supply chain of trust. And one of the things, one of the biggest casualties, I think, of, of the pandemic has been the erosion on trust, of trust, that you can actually rely on those supply chains, which actually is, lays the groundwork for regionally based vaccine manufacturing. The real issue is not the amount of vaccines and any kind of mathematical formula. The real issue is trust. And, and who you can trust to actually supply you when there is scarcity. And, and then finally, and maybe I'll just end these opening comments uh, here, and I know we'll get on to talking about um, companies and other things. Um, you know, the whole thing, I think, has left me feeling angry and sad. Um, and uh, I, questioning some very fundamental values. So, for example, you know, is it really true that we love thy neighbor? like ourselves sure doesn't seem like it is it really true that all lives have equal value it's not the way we're acting so uh, you know i think we have to get back in touch with some of those uh, fundamental values and 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 just uh, you know the thing that causes me optimism is young people and keeping in mind the words of uh, nelson mandela which is it always seems impossible until it's done so that's what the sequel would say, um, Maza, and uh, thank you again, and back to you, and happy to keep going a little bit more deeply into this. Okay, thank you for those opening remarks, and um, we're going to keep you on a little bit with some additional questions, just because I know you have to sign off shortly. Um, you know, you, you bring to mind a question that I always have when I watch Dr. Chedros sort of speaking sternly to, you know, about world leaders and about pharma CEOs. Um, I always feel that you have a very difficult position. You know, you have to be diplomatic as the World Health Organization. Um, you have to call out greed while also knowing that you're going to have to work with these 
leaders or these companies in the future, you know, about other diseases or even later down the line on COVID-19. You know, you are the World Health Organization, not the World COVID Organization. So there are many other things that you are working on with these same people. So I wanted to ask you how you balance that. You know, I think even about your own country of Canada, in that same Toronto Star piece, you had very optimistically said that Canada has committed to sharing its doses once, you know, vaccination levels have risen to the point that they need to be to keep people safe. But what I hear now is that Canada is actually hoarding vaccines, that Canada has five times the, the number of vaccines that, that it needs. And, you know, quite frankly, I think many of us were much more optimistic as you were about Canada compared to other countries. And so how do you manage that balancing act, you know, to call out greed, to call people out, but also maintain that diplomatic relationship that the World Organization, need, that World Health Organization needs to have? Thank you so much, Mas. I mean, uh, to start, I think, again, it, it starts with leadership. And uh, I would argue that leadership is actually the most effective vaccine against the pandemic. And not only against the pandemic, but against the conjoint global challenges that we face. Um, racism, economic inequality, climate. The final common denominator of those conjoint challenges is leadership. Um, in terms of uh, WHO in particular, uh, I mean, what I have come to understand very deeply is what principled leadership means. You know, people see Tedros uh, taking um, positions, but they are always based on principle. And to me, that is the guiding light, the North Star, that makes uh, uh, me feel so proud of WHO and of Tedros. Um, uh, and of course, uh, a commitment to equity is, is at the very heart of those, uh, of those, uh, of those principles. Um, pivoting to the question of diplomacy and countries, look, I think the G7 as a whole, um, and now we're getting into the one, there's really two issues here, right? There's how you allocate vaccines in the short term, and then how you share technology and the underlying structural issues in the midterm, because that's the sustainable solution. But now we're talking about the first thing, vaccine allocation. I think that, uh, you know, the G7 countries as a whole um, at the G7 meeting pledged just under a billion uh, vaccine doses. And now it's probably up to 1.5 billion or a little bit higher as some countries have upped their pledges. But last I checked a week or so ago, 15% had been delivered. And that's against 47,000 people dying last week. And, you know, I can only presume that, I don't, haven't seen that, that correlative data, but I can only presume many of those people are unvaccinated and therefore those deaths are preventable. And, um, and so I think there's an urgency in actually delivering on that promise. And you know what, early 2022, mid 2022, late 2022, it's just not okay. I mean, even if you go back to the fundamental targets, the targets themselves, you know, the 40% target, and now it looks like I think 60 something countries might are on track to miss that target. You're no fault of their own, by the way, uh, by the end of the year. Um, uh, even if you go back to those targets, I mean, the 40% target by the end of the year, I guess has some, it's great to have a target. I guess it has some pragmatic limitations. Um, but to get back to the um, underlying issue of otherness, I'm not sure that those G7 countries, for example, would be happy with a 40% target even now. So I think it's all um, related. 
So to me, just to wrap this part up, it's about leadership. It's about um, delivering on your commitments uh, quickly because every week, 47,000 people last week are dying, many of whom don't have to die. And most fundamentally, it's about those values of, you know, do we really love our neighbor like we love ourselves? Do we, do we, uh, do we think all lives are equal value? You know, I think we have to really start proving that. And, um, and uh, every, 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 uh, every week lives are hanging in the balance. So that's how I'd respond on the leadership, on the countries, on the delivering, on the promises, not only ever, but now. And, uh, and I think that takes us to the companies and the more sustainable solutions. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And I have a question for you about the role of civil society. It's always very kind of alarming when I hear somebody like FIFA saying that, you know, the microphones of civil society rep representatives have been muted and, you know, they're getting version seven of documents, you know, from entities that are, are led by or run out of, you know, the World Health Organization, you know, like COVAX or others. So I wanted to ask you, you know, what do you think the role of civil society is and in this, you know, this discussion that we're having today and what can you do or other leaders in the World Health Organization to make sure that the voices of civil society are not muted, either you know, in reality or sort of you know, in a, in a in an abstract sense. Yeah, I mean, what I would say there is any organization is so fortunate would be is and would be so fortunate to have someone like FIFA engaged, speaking truthfully, speaking honestly. And the same would apply for Fatima, the same would apply for Cameron, the same would apply for you, uh, Maza. I mean, that is a gift. And then the question is what you do with that gift. And I think, and I'm speaking generally, the best institutions, the best, the best, uh, sorry about that, the best institutions, the best organizations uh, embrace that uh, embrace that gift. So let me just say that. And, and let me also say that we will do everything we can to amplify those uh, voices. And that's uh, why I feel so privileged to be here uh, uh, today. You know, Tedros has said historically WHO was shy by design on partnerships and has really worked hard through his transformation to change that in no more important time than now to do that. You know, I should say that um, you can't deliver vaccines you don't have down your channel. I think that would be fair. People would probably agree with that, but that just puts the focus back on supply. And, uh, and so uh, civil society is so incredibly important. I mean, listen to the messages we just heard from these brilliant um, uh, panelists. These are the messages that are going to, uh, to save the world. And, and when I talked about principled leadership, I was talking about Tedros, but I was also talking about Fatima and, uh, and FIFA and, uh, and, and Cameron. So an incredibly important role. And by the way, that's not a bad pivot to the companies. You know, um, wouldn't be the worst thing in the world to have Fatima or FIFA or yourself or Cameron on the boards of one of these companies. Uh, and, you know, you could think about that. I mean, if I would just to pivot now, Mazen, if that's okay. So, you know, I think we have to think deeply about these companies. I think we have to think about it in terms of corporate governance and those boards and those AGMs and, uh, and, and uh, you know, what those resolutions of those AGMs are like. And we need to think about the climate examples 
where social goals are linked, for example, to resolutions on executive compensation. I think we need to channel this anger and this sadness into action, including in, uh, I mean, I'm just throwing these ideas out here. Um, uh, if I, I mean, just imagine yourself on the board of one of these companies. W what would you say? What is the responsibility of a board of directors uh, with respect to global vaccine equity? It's not nothing. You have the UN human business principles, you've got the human rights principles, but how is that brought to the surface? How is that enforced? Could be through you know, the directorships of these uh, companies. So we have to find a practical way to channel that. That's point one. And then point two is I think a group that maybe hasn't um, been enough the focus of attention is the investors in these companies, especially the institutional investors that can help move these companies. Some of those investors are universal owners, which means they own a lot of companies in the market. Well, if you get a variant that's worse than Delta, um, you know, as, as uh, Fatima was saying, uh, they're going to lose a lot more money uh, than they're, across the market than they're going to gain in, in, you know, investing in a particular sector. That's not a moral argument. That's actually a financial risk argument. To what extent have we made that argument? And then secondly, some of those investors are institutional investors, you know, churches, uh, health uh, worker pension funds, um, ethical investors. Uh, to what extent are those investors, um, you know, fully linking the burning fire of, of, of vaccine inequity in the world with, um, with their missions, uh, with their stated missions to the actual decisions that they're making. So I think we have to really start to look at the climate example. And of course, we're building on the, on the HIV example, the climate example and how some of that social activism has been translated um, through corporate governance channels, through investment channels into into uh, into 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 real action. Here, I'm really just raising questions uh, because we have to pull every lever we can, and uh, and we all agree that uh, this situation is completely unacceptable—a moral catastrophe. Uh, and then we have to shift our attention to how to how to get out of this, how to help the world get out of this catastrophe. Thank you for that. And um, I know you have to sign off shortly. If you have any closing remarks or just a sense to share with us, you know, I know when you joined, I had asked you if you're feeling optimistic or pessimistic, and you said sometimes a little bit of both. Um, how are you feeling about, you know, the, the rest of this year? What is your view from the WHO or any closing remarks that you'd like to leave us with before you sign off? Yeah, I mean, the first thought, again, thinking about this hour is humbled. I'm humbled to be with people like yourself and and Fatima and FIFA and, and Cameron. I really mean that very, very authentically. And, and again, just respect and appreciation to, to what you're doing. And, and you know, we will work close, we will continue to work closely together. Um, I've expressed a lot of pessimistic views in the last 10 or 15 minutes. So let me focus on the optimism. Uh, the, you know, fundamentally, <laughs> I'm optimistic. This pandemic will end. It's only a question of when. Equity is in our hands. It's only a question of what we do with it. When I look to um, uh, young people, I'm very optimistic. And how do we mobilize young people um, to call upon their own domestic governments 
to do the types of things that Fatima and, and, and Fifa and Kamran were, were, uh, were, were discussing. So um, I think we have to stay optimistic. I think we have no choice. I think this pandemic will end. And um, I think that it has exposed deep, deep fault lines in our societies, in our health systems, and deep value-laden issues uh, about, uh, you know, whether you really care about equity if you don't have solidarity and whether you really care about solidarity if you don't have empathy. And at the heart of this, it's, I think, the value is empathy. Um, and uh, and uh, so it goes back to some very simple values. I do feel optimistic when I see young people doing things uh, on this topic. It makes me more optimistic. Um, and uh, so I'll end on a note of hope. I'll end on a note of optimism. The, the people on this panel make me optimistic, even though we're all sad and angry at this moment, because it's this these voices that will lead to uh, that will lead to the change that, uh, that that is needed. So and and the leadership. You know, of people like Tedros, and maybe I'll just end there. Uh, make me feel, uh, make me feel optimistic. So I hope that's not too Pollyanna-ish. I hope it's realistic. I just wanted to sprinkle it as a counterpoint to some of the uh, more pessimistic views I, I put forward. And the fact that there are practical channels, and I mentioned a few of them, even in mm. domains, you know, unconventional action and the parallels from climate and the stakeholder mm. and, and investor activism. I think there's stuff we can still do. Uh, to make this better and let's do it uh, let's do it uh, together and let's get it done as quickly as possible because at the end of the day uh, you know 47,000 deaths last week is just completely unacceptable Mm -hmm. and and it's as simple as that and and it's time for that to be zero or as close to zero as we can get it and again thank you so much and my real apologies for leaving I'd really love to stay for Thank another you. Hour and, and my respect and appreciation to, 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 to you all. And we, anything we can do to help, we're here to help. And I'm at Peter A. Singer. And please, let's, uh, let's all work together. Thank you so thank much you. for joining us. We really appreciate your time. Thank you, Peter. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, so everybody, I think we will pivot a little bit. Um, Peter is signing off. FIFA, I do have some questions for you about COVAX, and I know people will have as well. And Fatima, I have um, a couple of other questions for you. But Kamran, I wanted to to pivot to something about booster shots, if that's okay, because I know that that's something that's on people's minds. Um, and we know that millions of people have already been, been receiving booster shots globally, um, despite the evidence being, from what I understand, a little bit weak about um, whether people who don't have kind of immune issues or are not really at high risk need them. So I wanted to ask you as a physician, you know, what does the evidence actually say? Um, What would you tell your vaccinated patients if you had them um, in the UK about whether they should go for booster doses? And this is actually genuinely a question that we are getting from our civil society representatives around the continent. You know, what do they say to the grandparents and the healthcare workers who haven't even received their first shots when now we're hearing of, you know, 60-year-olds who are otherwise healthy, but just happen to be 60 in the UK or in the US getting booster shots. So what what is your kind of language and thinking about that? Yeah, thanks for the question. Um, I think to begin with on the evidence, I think the evidence is that, um, you know, immunity 
seems to last pretty well. We don't actually know how long it lasts after vaccination. There is some tailing off. Does that tailing off uh, equate with people then being less likely um, to be protected against COVID? I mean, I saw a paper just just published last week that said even though there was some tailing off of measured immunity levels, that people still remain protected. Um, So the vaccines, even after two doses, are remaining effective um, for several months. And clearly, we don't have the data yet to know exactly how long um, that will last. I mean, on on a macro level, there seems to be absolutely no justification at the moment. to support uh, booster booster shots, except in the most vulnerable um, uh, among in the richer countries. So, the policy of saying, um, you know, where are we going to provide you booster shots um, in the adult population? To me, that's pure that that's politics. That's greed. That's you know, politicians try. I mean, let's take the UK for example. The UK's story is one of absolute lurching from one disaster to another and at each stage the response speed but look how well our vaccination program is going so the vaccination program is really a political card boosters to me are a political card and for the companies they're just a way of making more money when the evidence isn't really backing uh, those booster shots and i think we've made the argument far to myself and gavin uh, in the piece that we wrote back in august uh, very clearly that those booster shots should be redirected um to Africa, to Asia, to Latin America, to other parts of the world where they are required so that people can, you can, you can actually get to 5%, which is, what, you know, which is incredible. They haven't got to 5% in Africa. We know we should be getting to 50%. And it, it, it's, it's just embarrassing. It's, um, it's depressing. All the things that, that Peter described as well when he was speaking. You say, what do you say to the industry? I think it puts the individual in a very, very, very difficult position. Um, if you're an individual worrying about yourself, your family, perhaps loved ones that you know that you you may have concerns for, I think you know it, it puts that person in a difficult position by saying, "Well, actually, no, send my my dose to Africa." When you know that probably isn't going to happen, so I think it's quite hard to expect individuals to say, "No, this isn't for me." You know, um, I refuse to take this booster shot. People could, of course, do that, and people are doing that. The responsibility, in my in my mind, really lies with the politicians. And it really lies with the people who are running the big pharmaceutical companies, the vaccine manufacturers, because they're caught up in a web of spin. And the web of spin is to promote um, these booster shots, which they must absolutely know are unnecessary. But they're doing it for the reasons that we're here, that we're talking here today about. It's either political greed or financial greed. And, and that's where the focus needs to be. And the problems run very deep. They run so deep that it means that our whole society, our, our way of living, um, needs radical reform. We have a society that rewards profit, that rewards greed, that rewards commercial corporate greed. You know, it's not, that, oh, you made you made a, th- a 10 billion profit last year. Fantastic. Can you make that again? I mean, companies are actually judged by how much they increase that profitability by. What do they do with that money? Most of them manufactured their vaccines through public money. Are they giving that back? What are, what are, they, what, what are they doing to, to return that investment from the public purse? So, Unless we shift our focus as a society to health being central to wealth, making investments 
based on health. And I think there is some progress being made, you know, at, at a kind of higher level around those arguments. I think we'll find ourselves in this situation again and again and again. And so that's where the focus needs to be. I think it's difficult for individuals, um, especially when something's being offered to them. It's the policymakers and the companies pushing those policies that really have to take the responsibility. Mm. Okay, thank you, Kamran. And Fatima, I'd like to come back to you because some of both what Peter have said and Kamran has just talked about reminded me, and you know, they said it very clearly that we've been through this before. You know, so much of this is very reminiscent of the, the struggle for HIV meds. And you mentioned, you know, this notion that we couldn't take our medication on time. What was the point? There was the, you know, the fact that Nelson Mandela's administration was sued by 38 or 40 pharmaceutical companies with the support of the US government and Europeans. So I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about that, you know, in the moments where we feel very depressed and we think that we're not going to win this battle, you know, what are the lessons that you can bring us from that time? Because I know that you, um, despite the fact that you look very youthful, were in, in that battle as well back then. And anything else that you'd like to add or respond to, to what um, any of the, of the other panelists have said? Thanks. So, I mean, I think, you know, just to echo what Kamran and Peter and Pifa have said, um, in many ways, the, the way in which this pandemic has been managed has been worse, right, than the HIV AIDS crisis, because we thought we wouldn't have a repeat of that. And we thought we wouldn't have a repeat of the greed and the hoarding and the refusal to share knowledge in the middle of a pandemic where you have a life-saving intervention. So, you know, Kamran and Peter have talked about how remarkably we got these vaccines, multiples, of vaccines that are considered safe and effective. They have emergency use authorization. And what happened? All of the supplies was allocated to the global north, uh, very low targets for the global south where black and brown people happen to live, which is why, you know, I'm going to go back to the point about racism, because for me, this just feels like um, the racism wasn't even disguised. You know, in HIV AIDS, it was initially, whereas in this case, we thought it would be so different, there would be that solidarity, the sharing of knowledge, and, and that didn't happen. So, you know, the lesson from HIV AIDS, I think, that just became clearer last night when we had a panel discussion with David Kessler, who's in charge of the Biden White House team on the COVID-19 response. And, you know, incredulously, in October 2021, we're having the same discussions we should have had, uh, you know, one imagines a year ago, where where a government like the US, which is considered to be so powerful, that has put a lot of funding into uh, particularly Pfizer, Johnson & Johnson and uh, Moderna's vaccine, is saying to us that they are still negotiating with the CEOs and the boards of these pharmaceutical companies. They are still having a conversation about manufacturing and sharing of knowledge. And so, you know, I don't know if, if any of you heard the conversation last night, but it was really disheartening because I think it goes to what, Kamran and Peter have talked about, and that is financial greed. There is so much interest in extracting profit and extracting wealth and extracting, you know, there's a number of overnight billionaires, our, our colleagues in the People's Vaccine Alliance have reported on this, um, that, they, that they even with 5% or the 2.6% of vaccination in low-income countries, which is really, really I think a political embarrassment and economic embarrassment, social embarrassment, um, that even with those low figures and COVAX cutting its own forecast and saying we simply don't have supplies, right? That 
that companies are still sitting around the table and having these conversations with elected leaders who are saying to them, share the tech. And they're like, no, not this month, maybe next year. No, maybe next year, only with that company, not on these terms and conditions. No, you can't export. Yes, you can export. So, so the question goes to, can we have so much self-interest in money and extracting profit that you are willing to withhold a life-saving technology to millions and millions of people around the world. And so I think I agree with Peter, what are the boards of these pharmaceutical companies doing? They have a fiduciary duty. How can the chairperson of the board of Moderna refuse to share the technology um, with the rest of the world, be celebrated and get an award for leadership? How can this be the leadership? The CEO of Pfizer who said that the reason why Africans are not getting more vaccines is because they vaccine hesitant and that you know, it, it will take some time for people in Africa to be convinced. And I mean, he said, uh, you know, countless other things which Stian and I've tried to address. He also said that Africa is not the hardest hit continent, which is not exactly true. So how can you have a situation that CEOs of pharmaceutical companies have more power than, than the DG of the WHO, than elected leaders? Um, and I think it goes to the fact that these elected leaders, particularly Boris Johnson, you know, formerly Angela Merkel, a lot of these governments have actually propped up these pharmaceutical companies. And we saw that with HIV AIDS, is that you cannot exercise so much power and control unless you have the political support of those closest to you. And we've seen that with the TRIPS waiver. The countries that are blocking the TRIPS waiver are countries that are fundamentally uh, led by people who have political parties that are heavily funded by the pharmaceutical lobby, all those companies are headquartered there. The fact that the German government cannot force BioNTech to share its technology with the rest of the world, the fact that the Biden administration is still having nice conversations with, you know, three leading companies that could actually take us out of this pandemic much faster, tells you, I think, the levels of greed that we are dealing with and also the levels of, of power, which is obviously very reminiscent and similar to the HIV AIDS crisis. In some respects, these are the same companies, but none of us ever uh, thought last year when we gave the warning bells around never trust volunteerism, never trust benevolence, never trust donations, because we've learned this from the HIV AIDS crisis. None of us thought that it would still take so long for world leaders in this pandemic, because we're so interconnected with this pandemic, with variants circulating, with you know potential uh, additional waves, and like Peter said, what comes after Delta? I, I think Cameron said, what comes after Delta? None of us thought that political leaders would be so scared. And and I mean, you know, let's also just lay a little bit of blame at African leaders, right? So, I mean, you know, the South African government and Indian government have been pushing with the trips waiver, but you knew the kind of blockages and obstacles you would face. I mean, we, we all hoped we didn't. So have we set up our laws to be ready to issue compulsory licenses? Why are we so scared on take, taking on pharmaceutical companies? I mean, we know why, we know the trade pressure, but if you're not gonna use those powers, I think it's what you know the DG of the WHO said last week, why have provisions in the TRIPS agreement on a TRIPS waiver if you're not going to use it? If you're not going to use it in this pandemic, we're never, we're never going to use it. So, yeah, uh, you know, unfortunately, a lot of Asia vu moments of, of the HIV AIDS crisis. But I think Peter is right. What turned the tide on HIV AIDS was that all of us basically mobilized to force the drug companies to issue 
multiple licenses to increase the number of manufacturers. Until then, we didn't have a turning point. And so when people see our response to Moderna, Pfizer, and Johnson & Johnson, it's not because we are anti-private companies or anti the pharmaceutical industry. It's because we know that time is against us. People are getting sick and dying. We don't force these companies through public pressure and public activism because governments are not going to get this on their own. We have to increase the public pressure on these pharmaceutical companies and their boards to actually do the right thing. And right now to scale up manufacturing, participate in the mRNA hubs and stop diverting supplies to richer countries that already have sufficient supplies. Thanks. Thank you, Fatima. So FIFA, I had a question planned for you um, about racism, because as I said, you have one of my favorite Twitter feeds. Um, you never miss an opportunity to call out a racist, which I really, I love whenever I go to your Twitter account. But I know that, um, you know, we've spoken about racism quite a bit already. So I wanted to, you know, ask you, you know, there have been so many sort of theories about Kovacs' demise, you know, that the fact that they didn't, as you said, did not engage with civil society early enough, that there was a lot of incompetence, there's a lot of hubris, you know, the idea of country representatives calling and not being able to reach anyone at COVAX. Does all of that just boil down to racism and we don't care about people in those countries? Or, you know, for example, what I think now about um, your former health secretary, Hancock, you know, being given this very important position um, when he's shown that he actually couldn't do the job even in the UK. And I actually saw a headline that says, Hancock hopes that this new position will help restore sort of like, I think they said his, his tarnished reputation because there had been a video of him, um, you know, in, an, in a compromised position, et cetera. So, I mean, the thought that here you are, somebody who has proven that they can't do their job um, and has so many issues and people say, well, here, just take Africa and handle that. And that will help kind of clean up your reputation. So I'm just wondering, you know, when you think about COVAX and its demise, when you think about the situation with Hancock, and maybe you can tell us a little bit, given that you live in the UK, is it as bad as we think it is when we, you know, read the articles in the news? And does everything just, you know, boil down to racism? You know, that's my first question. And my second is, since we didn't really get a chance to talk too much after your slides, is there anything else that you'd like to tell us about the demise of COVAX and sort of your hopes for its resuscitation? I mean, is COVAX a lost cause at the moment? Or do you think that there is, is hope to resuscitate it um, at the end of this year or early next year? Thanks so much, Marza. And look, I'm very pessimistic about COVAX. And, and you know, I, I don't know how I can be optimistic because I, I think there needs to be fundamental shifts uh, in our global health architecture and how we think. Because it's not just the racism in our structures, but it's the racism within ourselves, right? And and this is quite important. And, and I was just thinking about the strategic review of the ACT Accelerator, which we've just completed and was con completed by Dahlberg Consultants. So uh, to be fair to Dahlberg, the end result was good. But the question I was asked in consultation for this review was, what special structure do we need to consult LMICs? And I'm like, how did you get in touch with that expert from Boston University on, on diagnostics modeling? The special structure is email. You know, it's like, it's it, this idea that you need some kind of structure to engage black and brown people is, is a little bit crazy, you know? Yeah, you need like drums or something, like talking <laughs> yeah. drums, yeah. Yeah, you need drones to get to black and brown people, um, which is cool. I'd love a drone. But, um, you know, I, I also just appreciate an email. And it's, 
it's it was very bizarre that that there needs to be in you know some kind of special technology uh, uh, to consult black and brown people from the global south. So you know if there's an infectious diseases specialist um, or a modeling expert or or you know you should be able to email Sabina Sanzimana from Rwanda and go how do we help how do we sort this right. Um, so, so, you know, it's really important to talk about the racism within ourselves. Um, and this Matt Hancock thing, how, you know, it's, it's, it's the same kind of a, a cage or box that, that the Pfizer CEO is in, right? Because the Pfizer CEO is, is like ignoring the hesitancy in France and the United States and amplifying the hesitancy in Ethiopia, Somalia, South Africa, right? What, what is special about these has this hesitancy in, in South Africa and Ethiopia? And, and uh, the unsaid thing, but the, the thing that we all know is that these people are Black. Right. And, and that's that's quite important. So and the racism exists outside the act accelerator as well, within the academic spaces in global health as well. And the example of this is that I was sent a paper to sign my name on to because that's hip apparently now a full paper to sign my name on to um, about alternatives to the COVAX. Right. So alternatives to the COVAX. And they were like, can you insert something on governance? I wrote something about how the governance structures are racist. They create and perpetuate racist health systems because they they don't involve the equal intellectual partnership of the global south, um, the interests of the global south. And uh, one by one, the global north authors just popped up in the comments going like, this language is just a bit you know and so what I did I don't know if everybody saw that that exchange on Twitter I tweeted the Lancet and I said there are a bunch of authors who are uncomfortable with the language racist health systems are you uncomfortable with racist health systems and the Lancet actually said back no we use this language so it's it's actually interesting how the racism is is not just in the global health architecture and in certain agencies I've had better experiences with some agencies versus others um but in some agencies in particular, but within ourselves as human beings, and, and it comes out very frequently and influences our access to vaccines, diagnostics and therapeutics, but in academia as well. Uh, and that's fundamentally problematic. And unless we, we use certain words to call out these behaviors, because I realize we, see, we use decolonize all the time. And I'm wondering whether people are not understanding whether, what, what decolonize means. You know, the appointment of Matt Hancock is so condescending and so racist when here in the UK, we've had some one of the worst responses in the world, right? What makes you think you can save Africa? It's appalling and we need to call it out. Thanks. Great. Thank you so much, FIFA. Um, so I do want to open it up for questions now. Um, I, we're also happy to have people raise their hands and chime in if Chiwa can... Um, uh, allow people to unmute themselves, or maybe chew up. Somebody does raise their hand, we can unmute them. Um, so we please feel free to to ask questions while people are thinking about their questions. I do have one um, that came in from our colleague at um, the People's Health Movement, who was not able to join today. So this is for any of you, um, any of the three of you who, who would like to take it. And then Isati, we will come to you. Let me just sneak this question in. So we got a question from Lauren. What are the key lessons the COVID pandemic has taught us about the limits of voluntary mechanisms in regulating corporate greed? And Fatima, I think you touched on that based on your conversation webinar yesterday. What has it revealed about the quandaries of relying on aspects of legally binding frameworks that aim to promote health 
but routinely fail in practice? Um, how can these lessons be applied to efforts to develop the pandemic treaty and the UN treaty on transnational corporations and human rights? So I don't know who feels more comfortable trying to take that on. I mean, I think Fatima, you sort of addressed the fact that we can know, it's clear that we can no longer count on companies to do these things on a voluntary basis. Yeah, and I see Cameron is also bursting to, to chime in. So Cameron, yeah, why don't we start? No, no, I'll, I'll just keep it short. I mean, the, the simple fact is voluntary mechanisms do not work. Um, they have never worked for the pharma industry. It's just uh, a way of uh, voluntary or self-regulation. These things don't work. They're just ways to dodge responsibility, as far as I'm concerned, to dodge corporate responsibility. Uh, the second half of that was about regulatory frameworks. Um, I don't know of any, I mean, this is the problem. Um, the, I mean, so the, the companies are only accountable to their boards. There weren't any regulatory frameworks necessarily that were legally binding upon them um, that I'm aware of. I'm not a lawyer. Um, and that's why, you know, um, and, and hence the that accountability had to come through elected representatives representatives through the politicians they were the ones that had to act like with a conscience a global conscience and exert that um, sort of power uh, and and enforce that responsibility upon corporations they haven't done so because they're sort of in bed together for all sorts of historical reasons um and you know race you know and and, uh, and racism and uh, and colonialism are, are are tied up with that very much so we know that um so then looking ahead when it comes to the this is why clearly, you know, there's work being done on the pandemic treaty. Uh, I think we all hope that it comes about because one of the, the, the questions have been, how do you make any individual country or corporation that's based in that company globally responsible? And we generally do not have mechanisms in public health to make that happen. Some of that has started to happen because of climate change. Um, we now need to introduce that uh, for public health and other health uh, initiatives. So, um, you know, yes, out of the despair, there are there is optimism. There are ways forward, but ultimately, it all boils down to the the willingness of countries to abide by those treaties um, and whatever teeth that can be put into those agreements i'm not a, not a lawyer there are other lawyers on on, on this webinar um, you know they need to be they need to be put in place um, and um, th there is when we, when we think about leadership that's been the the one if we'd say one thing that has uh, that has led to the crisis that we're in now it is, and if you only to pick one thing, it's the absolute failure of leadership in the rich world, um, but also in Africa. You know, if I'd be really, I'm really interested to hear some of these ideas around how Africa can be mobilized to say, this is it, enough is enough, and to stand up for um, the continent. I mean, I, I know of this from being a South Asian. The lead reflects the problems and the aspirations. Of, the, of their populations, the same in the Middle East, the same in Africa, the same in South America. It's that disconnect between the aspirations of the populace and also the greed of, of, of local politicians that go that is then compounded by the greed that you get from the richer countries. So if, if I, I think, you know, just to finish, I, I there was somebody I a public health person in the UK, not about Matt Hancock, <laughs> um, but we said, well, what can we done? What can we do about this? We feel powerless. And the, the they said, well, I've spoken to my MP, and the MP says the only way we can get out of this is through the courts. So we're all looking to the lawyers, 
um, the future of humanity is in your hands. How can you create legally binding mechanisms that will hold leaders accountable? That's the challenge. I think the, the, the challenge has come to you, Fatima. Esati, I will come to you now, but do you have anything you want to add to what Kamran has said since he's challenging, challenging you as a lawyer to save us, save us all? <laughs> yeah, I mean, unfortunately, the lawyers are not going to save this one. But what we can do is shine a spotlight on the current legal system that makes it possible to take certain actions, which, you know, I think goes to the point about leadership, which governments don't want to use. So they have the law on their side in many respects, and leaders in Africa have the law on their side as well. Um, member states have the law on their side at the at the WTO on the, on the TRIPS agreement, but the the pernicious form of vaccine nationalism and greed and the power that has been exercised by CEOs uh, even makes it difficult for the Biden administration to use the law that it has on its side. So, you know, I don't know if the law is necessarily going to take, it out, take us out of this pandemic because there's, there's so many laws that are currently available that we just can't seem to push the envelope on. Um, but we can on transparency and around secrecy and use the laws available to us to make these country uh, make these companies more transparent. I think that 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 has to be the, the first uh, battle. The the battle around compulsory licensing and using the law to try and get compulsory licenses. I mean, we've we've seen the laws available in Canada and the Canadian government refuses to use the law against Johnson and Johnson in respect of Biolis requesting a license, right? So I think Kamran is right. We're going to have to think of a creative third way of actually pushing uh, the intellectual property arguments and how we decommodify going forward. Because unfortunately, the WTO is not the solution. Clearly, it isn't. It can't get us out of this pandemic. Um, and the pandemic treaty, there is a concern that the language of the pandemic treaty is again going to benefit the rich north. And that Germany and the UK in particular and their delegations are playing a very negative role in that process to try and insert language that would protect them in a pandemic and would not protect us in a pandemic. So, you know, I just I just want to warn that there are clear, clear limitations. But having said that, you know, we have governments in Africa that signed a contract with a company where our governments didn't even know that this company was exporting vaccines to Europe. And then the AU and its envoys and everybody who's busy negotiating deals for Africa to get vaccines, most of which have not been delivered, then holds a press conference and says, oh, we've now paused it and we didn't know. So, so I think we also have to look closer to home to say, why did you sign contracts that are considered secret? Why did you sign contracts that, that you gave up your sovereign rights? Because in any event, you're not getting supplies. You know, the, the, it would have made a huge difference if you said, I got 10 million vaccines and therefore I had to sign away my rights. But but you've, you haven't got enough supplies and you've given up all of your rights and your autonomy. And so there's a reason why we get taken advantage of because I think our leaders allow us to be taken advantage of. And there are many international instruments that we could be using. We could be exhausting the UN mechanism. I mean, there's people who are experts on international law, but we're not doing that because we're still waiting for the CEO of a pharmaceutical company to, to, to get it. We're still waiting for some voluntary action from, you know, from foreign leaders. And so I, I think we actually have a real battle ahead of us about how we enter the next pandemic in a way where we are more prepared 
to be able to not just legally, but economically, politically, and also from a public relations point of view, make sure that these companies don't do what they have. I mean, their boards and their investors, except in one case, uh, a faith group organization in relation to Johnson & Johnson, have not called out the vaccine apartheid of these companies and their pernicious practices. They're actually laughing all the way to the bank. I mean, we're getting sick and dying and waiting for like poultry suppliers. And they are actually making billions, which is the reason why they don't want to share the the recipe, right? I mean, there's 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 a self-interest here at play and agreed. And if we don't manage to turn the tide in this pandemic, I guarantee you the next pandemic and the one after that and any other life-saving medication or vaccine, we're going to have a repeat of this. And we're going to have to pay the highest price because in this pandemic, our leaders decided hands off. The only thing our leaders have done is supported the TRIPS waiver. I'm a supporter of the TRIPS waiver, but but it's one year later, that's not enough. You've got to take some more serious uh, concerted action. Thanks. Absolutely. Thank you, Fatima. And of course, you know, just circling back to the greed, what you said, you know, the, the data that we've seen is that nine pharma CEOs have become billionaires in the last year, you know, off of COVID. So here's the greed winning that again. Uh, we have a question from Esati Hasbula. I hope I said that right. Um, welcome. Intr please let us know where you are calling in from. Hi, I'm Izati. I'm calling from Oxford. I'm currently an MBA candidate, and I just finished a master's in international health and tropical medicine, also at Oxford University. So it's definitely something I'm interested in at an intersection between the public and private um, and the role for the greater good. So I like the comment on the idea that we can learn from the climate change movement and how to make corporations care by hurting their bottom line and their investors. Um, however, my pessimistic side is saying the reason that they care is because a lot of people, the public started to care and the public started to care because it hurts them. Climate change hurts them. You can see even on the idea of climate change, um, climate resilience, no one's talking about that, just climate change in terms of fossil fuel use. So how can we learn from the climate change movement to make corporations care if issues such as vaccine justice is seem like something so far away? How do we make people care so that people can um, hold corporations accountable and hurt their investments and bottom line? What systems need to exist for them to, for corporations to take notice? Thank you so much for that. So I have um, two very brief thoughts, but definitely, you know, panelists, um, I would like you to chime in. I mean, something that the People's Vaccine Alliance has been trying to do is to highlight stories from the global south, you know, because there's a sense that people, as Fatima mentioned, you know, the Pfizer CEO, or maybe it was FIFA saying, you know, mentioned that, um, the epidemic was not, the pandemic was not as bad in Africa. You know, this notion that, you know, people's lives when people are dying in Africa doesn't count as much as it would in other places. So trying to highlight stories and experiences from the global South in a respectful way and making it, you know, so hopefully people in the global North will care more and then we'll push corporations or leaders um, to pay attention. Um, a second is, and I'd be curious to find out, you know, Kamran, you maybe, especially as a physician, if you if you think this is the case, you know, this notion of trying to convince people that your own vaccines will become less effective if the, the virus, you know, keeps mutating, you know, that this is, and I know that Dr. Tedros has said this very loudly, that it's not just, you know, immoral, it's also stupid on, an, you know, an, on a public health basis, you know, this kind of national nationalism. And I'm wondering if that kind of changes minds a little bit. And, you know, Esati, once once we answer, please let us know if you if we've answered the, the question that you're, you were asking, but Cameron, what do you think about that yeah. in terms of, of making people care? 
Yeah, th thanks for asking me. I can answer that. And I'll also just come back to uh, Ezati's question, which I think is a very good one. Um, I think the tragedy is that people don't care. Um, uh, we, as we know with climate change, people don't care unless it directly affects them. Uh, um, and so I think this is the major problem. If you're the politicians they've elected, if the media that they read or the social media that they're, they're, they're looking at do not support this messaging you know tr or trivialize this point that you know, that, that's, that we need the re you need to make the rest of the world safe to make yourself safe which is the point that i think everybody on this call gets um then i'm afraid it is a losing battle so you need that leadership political moral leadership from the politicians from the media i think they play a big part in this and, and influencers to kind of persuade the public of the importance of this because i with climate change you think well people aren't really going to suddenly accept this you know that they need to do something about it until there's a flood in their house you know for example or a fire burning down their you know their property the same with covid i think the people who have by it, seen death, seen illness, seen misery, yeah, even in rich countries. I mean, obviously, you know, they're the ones that are that then accept that something needs to be done about this. Um, so from that, um, I, can I just build on what Ezzeti said, but also think about some optimism here, because um, what we do know is happening when it comes to corporations, when it comes to climate change, is that there is increasing investor pressure on boards um, and the London stock market, for example, has a, a sort of a environmentally friendly list as well to see what action corporations are taking. So investors are beginning to exert that pressure. Now you might say, what response are companies making to that? They're, they might be making a cynical response just to make it look as if they're doing something about the climate now, but at least that's something, yeah? That is something that they're beginning to do. And the next step to that is that it becomes a, 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 culture, a culturally ingrained part of that company. And then we start to bring about change. But, the, but, but we won't get that change, genuine change, unless two things happen. One, we radically reform society and the world and the priorities that, that we aspire to from, as I said before, from valuing, from rewarding profit to rewarding well-being health of the planet and of, of, of humanity of individuals and population so until we get that shift the sort of societal shift that says we value health and well-being above profits then i think we won't get that genuine shift so so, so that's what needs to change and secondly um there does need to be that Strong, now, if, now if, we've got, if we've got a list looking at environmental progress that companies are making, we equally need to have voices on boards uh, in stock markets saying, what are you doing about in inequalities within your country and globally? You're a global company. What are you doing to try and reduce those inequalities? So until we get that system-wide reform and corporate reform and change our outlook as a society as a human as a, as a species then i think you know we aren't going to get where we, where we need to get i'm feeling encouraged for two reasons i think young people as peter said i think they take a very different view of the world the hope really resides in them they in many ways they've expressed so much more wisdom about what we need to do than than you know than many older people have um, and secondly 
I, I think the world, the, the polarization we're seeing in everything, uh, apart from revealing one side of it being is very, you know, very problematic and upsetting and hurtful, but the, the, equally there is another group of people who have been polarized, who have been activated, who are saying, "Well, hey, no, we don't want this anymore. The world has to change." We have to work together as, as one humanity. We have to look after the planet. We have to focus on well-being. We don't want greed. We don't want corruption. We don't want profits. We want a society that allows us to live in a way that, you know, we, we all have health and well-being in whichever country you are. And, and that's where the hope resides. We need to support those people, give them a voice, and then increase that thinking and that influence across the world. Great. Thank you, Cameron. And sounding, sounding very optimistic makes me feel a little bit better. Is that the, I hope that answered your question. Yes, thank you. I guess it's like a call for all of us to use our platforms however we can to just raise a voice on this. Thank you so much. Yes, and so happy to have you here. Thank you for joining us. Um, so we do have a question here um, from Segofatso about the jab specifically. So um, this person says, you know, are all these vaccines, Pfizer, J&J, Aspen, et cetera, um, are they different companies with different brands of medication? And each of the vaccines are different. Um, some of them are a little bit similar. So Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are more similar to each other than they are to Johnson & Johnson. Um, and then they go on to say, the reason I ask is why doesn't Pfizer just make one jab like J&J? Is it true that in the future J&J is going to make two jabs? Two jabs? And the answer to that is, and Cameron, I might circle back to you as a physician, but I just have recently heard that there is talk of, and just for you, Segofatso, even Pfizer has started doing second booster jabs. So that has not started in South Africa or on the African continent. But in the UK and in the US, there is some evidence that the efficacy of the protection of Pfizer, which was supposed to be, which was already a double jab, is now a third jab is being given because the efficacy is going down a little bit after as time goes on, as Cameron said, it's not exactly clear. But I have heard Cameron that Johnson & Johnson is considering giving booster shots as well. So maybe if you don't mind, I'm putting you on the spot again, but can you help clarify these questions for this person that's asking about the different vaccines? Yeah, I think you've answered it actually, Marcia, really. These are, I mean, there are, there are different categories of vaccine. They're all, and, and, and even within those categories, that some of them, they all work a little differently. Um, and we don't have so hence there are different vaccines it's all been manufactured by different companies um we don't have the full experience of them as you're saying you know we we have experience enough that tells us that as you've just said that um the vaccines are you know they offer but there are two things people are measuring they're either measuring they're measuring the immunity levels in, in individuals within your body and how your immune system is responding the other thing people are measuring is you know whether that still gives you protection against severe illness um, um, and I think even what the encouraging side of it is that, uh, and as I said earlier, is that it does seem that uh, the immunity within uh, within your body is lasting for a good number of months, six, seven, eight, nine months. And even if it's dropping, it's, it's curtailing to some degree. Um, the, I think the evidence that we're seeing is that it does protect you nonetheless from becoming severely ill. So all of that is encouraging. And that's what's raising the question marks about the boosters and whether they are really necessary. Um, so it's complicated. We don't have the full evidence. Uh, they all work a little differently. Immunity does 
does tail off, but it's all about prioritization. Is it more important at the moment to redirect those vaccines to Africa, to other parts of the world, than to give some to give somebody who's already got say sixty percent, um, you know, who's got a, a level of immunity to kind of boost that to seventy or eighty, or give it to somebody who hasn't got any <laughs> immunity to, to 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 the virus at all? And I think many of us are arguing that actually we have to vaccinate the world before we start giving the boosters, even though some of that immunity does wane over time. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, Kamran. And I hope that's clear to Gofatso in terms of your questions about the vaccines. And as Kamran has pointed out, that's, you know, one of our main issues as, as civil society now, you know, and I mentioned we've been answering questions from people who've been saying, what do we say to, you know, the nurses and doctors in the various countries who haven't even received their first jab when they hear that people in other richer countries are getting these booster third jabs if they're Pfizer or now potentially soon second jabs if there's Johnson and Johnson. So yes, so I hear, I see here that this person says they have understood. Thank you. Um, so now FIFA, I would like to come back to you. Um, we have about 20 minutes left and I wanted to do kind of like final thoughts, round up either on what you've heard today or issues that you think as we do the next in the series of these webinars. You know, as I said, we have the second one coming up and thank you, Chiwa, for putting the slide up there. The second one coming up is about divides. So the structural divides and structural violence, you know, within our countries that are, that are limiting access to vaccines within our own countries. And I know that people's health movement wants to talk about gender issues, wants to talk about migration issues, et cetera. And then the third one will hopefully really focus on the African issues that have been brought up. So African leadership, African solidarity at a continental or regional level. So anything, you know, that you'd like to say in terms of final thoughts today based on what we've heard or if there's anything that you didn't get a chance to, to, to chime in on and any thoughts for the next two um, of the series. So thanks, uh, um, Maza, for that. Um, I just wanted to speak to solidarity and African solidarity and the real importance to sort of invest in, in sort of regional health, right, and regional platforms, just because global health is broken and it, it, it will take some time for it to become unbroken, right? Um, and um, I just want to refer to something the Malaysian health minister said, and, and perhaps this can this can be the aim, right? Is that the health minister of Malaysia tweeted the COVAX has failed? Uh, we are not relying on them, you know, all of that. And 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 he, you know, he's been sort of procuring the the technologies um, all by themselves without waiting for global solidarity. I mean, obviously, Malaysia does have also the money and the lack of dependence on these global health agencies. Um, so, so there's a little bit of that as well involved in it. But it also leads us to think about how do we reduce dependency on on the global health agencies that might be impediments to us getting um, equity in, in any pandemic, not just the COVID, but in future pandemics. And it leads to questions like, what about domestic health funding? What about a new TRIPS order or a non-TRIPS order for Africa, right? I mean, these are all things that, that we need to think about in terms of a, world, a new world order, regional you know, it needs to get to the point where ministers feel comfortable to go, you know, you know what we're doing this regionally uh, the way that the way that um, the Malaysian health minister did. That dependency needs to reduce um, and, um, you know, we need to focus on regional uh, efforts. 
Thanks. Excellent. Thank you. And I see here that Tian Johnson is saying, blast from the past. What about Abuja? Um, I see FIFA is, is chuckling. Tian, if you would like to chime in and turn on your mic, you're very welcome. Um, if not, I will uh, shift <laughs> to, yeah, Tian's chuckling. Yes, go ahead, Tian. Welcome. Thanks, Laza. Hello, everyone. Um, hi there, FIFA. No, as FIFA was speaking, I was just thinking, you know, the absolute just you know, what about Abuja? You know, that was what, over a decade ago? It's there. It's just such a spectacular political failing. Um, I think across the board, it's really spectacular and just tragic um, to see. So yeah, thanks everyone, nice being here. Thank you. Okay, Kamran, I'm gonna come back to you now, just again, was there anything that you wished you could have spoken about today that you didn't get an opportunity to, to say or any closing words, or as I asked FIFA, you know, any thoughts for us as we prepare those two upcoming webinars on divides and solidarity? Yeah, um, so first of all, thank you for having me on today. I think I've said quite a lot. Um, <laughs> um, I think, what is the definition of greed? I think the definition of greed for me is, the fact that we have um, so much excess of vaccine um, and vaccine doses in rich countries, yet, yet countries in Africa have paid for vaccines. You know, they don't, I mean, they're struggling to pay for their health systems and their health services. They've already paid for vaccines and pharma companies are not giving and delivering those vaccines to them. I mean, to me, there is nothing more obscene than that. So this is the this is kind of uh, the vaccine justice, I think, is a good term. And it's really highlighting everything that's gone wrong um, with the world uh, and particularly with this pandemic crisis. I agree with what FIFA said. I think this pandemic, you know, we, we're not going to be able to change rapidly enough to have a major impact this time around. Yes, we must continue to fight and struggle and, 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 and strive for justice um, and equity. Um, but we must start thinking now about how we prevent this happening again. And as I say, you know, those reforms, those changes are deep. They are problematic for many countries. But I think, you know, Africa, Asia, and other countries that are, have been disadvantaged need to now think, how do we exert our power? How do we balance things out so that when the next crisis strikes, we are not left behind and we are not discriminated against in the way that we have on this occasion? So um, there are challenges for everybody. They're very complex, but there is hope and we need to keep fighting. Great, thank you so much, Kamran, much appreciated. Fatima, I will have you take us to the end of our, of our webinar, please. Any closing thoughts and also planning as we think about you know, the rest of the discussion going forward? Yeah, I mean, so I think that we actually can't depend on our leaders and we can't depend on the CEOs and the board of these companies. And right now we're in a situation where only nine countries in the whole of Africa, only nine, uh, have managed to actually vaccinate 10% of their people. That's shocking, right? In October 2021. Of the 35 countries in the world that have only reached 5% vaccination coverage, well, guess what? 28 of them are in Africa. So Africa actually right now is, you know, as we've argued, going to become known as the COVID-19 continent and the situation is going to get worse. And there's a few things we need to deal with right now. 
And I think that only public activism can actually change that and, and be the, the, the turning, uh, you know, represent the turning of the tide. The one is Johnson & Johnson and Aspen. The African Union is waiting for 400 million vaccines from Johnson & Johnson, which has given a single fill and finish license to Aspen. Aspen does not make the vaccine, they're just filling and finishing for them. And they haven't met those delivery schedules, there's a lot of secrecy, there's no transparency, and nobody is willing to take account for this. So Johnson & Johnson is a key pipeline of vaccine deliveries for Africa. And if we don't attend to the power that Johnson & Johnson is exercising, and the lack of delivery from Johnson & Johnson and Aspen for Africa, then we are going to wait very long for those 400 million vaccines, right? And the promises and the forecasts and the projections they've made are actually not being met. Then we have to rely on COVAX for the rest of our vaccines, because that's apparently where 700 million vaccines are going to come for Africa, which now seems most of it may take another two years with COVAX cutting its own forecast. And everything that FIFA has said about COVID means that we need to ramp up our activism around the board that is actually running COVID, which is Gavi, right? And some of the people who are sitting on Gavi are actually people from the scientific community who we know, who we trust, but we need to hold them to account. We've got to hold our own friends to account in this pandemic. It's not just CEOs of pharmaceutical companies, that entire COVID structure needs to be more transparent. I think the you know, the thing that really annoyed me in the last few weeks is COVAX comes up onto the stage and says, we want the vaccine manufacturers to be transparent and open and they should share their vaccine uh, supply schedules. And we've been saying to COVAX, you need to be transparent and accountable. You've signed secret contracts. We don't know what you've agreed to. What are the prices? We haven't even seen the South African COVAX agreement. They've only delivered 1.3 million vaccines, but we pay them a hell of a lot of money, and so to other countries. So, so right now, Africa is on its own. We have to rely on COVAX, which, as FIFA has said, cannot meet demand, is still relying on voluntary cooperation, cannot do anything to the CEOs of these companies, and is now calling for greater transparency. Well, a little bit too late, right? And then we have to rely on J&J, which is a single dose, and some evidence, and there's still a, a lot of um, discussion and engagement that's happening in the US, is whether a Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which is not an mRNA-based vaccine, will need a second shot of an mRNA vaccine. And that, that's called the mixing and matching. And whether that would actually increase efficacy uh, as, as time um, you know, passes. And so that's something that we're going to have to keep an eye on. So that means that the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine in this configuration is really, really important, especially as some uh, public health experts and epidemiologists and scientists are now suggesting that people who receive the Sinovac and Sinopharm vaccine may have to get an mRNA second shot, which is Pfizer, Moderna. Pfizer and BioNTech are partners, so that's the same vaccine, and then Moderna has an mRNA vaccine. And this is why we go back to the activism around the CEOs and the boards and the staff and the people who are working for Pfizer and Moderna, because whether we like it or not, these are not companies that are our allies or our friends, but whether we like it or not, the vaccines are going to become critical. And they know that, and they know that we will have to do annual vaccination programs for a little bit longer. It's not just going to be a one-off vaccine program. And therefore, we're going to need these vaccines. And so that goes to the heart of what is Africa doing to invest in its manufacturing capacity? You can't 
only rely on the WHO mRNA hubs. You can't rely on Moderna building a plant one day somewhere in Africa, which they haven't given us any details on. And then the so-called small film finish license to Aspen and BioVac, right? So they are distracting us from the real need to invest in manufacturing capacity in Africa. They're giving this small film finish license, but where Aspen and BioVac have no control and no power, which is the reason why Aspen was exporting the vaccines to Europe, instead of providing it to Africa, when South Africa was going into wave three. So if you look at the constellation of players and actors and forces, and the fact that it's going to take Africa a really long time to get to levels of even 40, 50% coverage, because one, you need supplies to do that. But two, because of the timing of when our vaccine programs have started, there's more hesitancy building up, which we now have to spend longer addressing, which means it's going to probably take us even longer to get to the levels of 50% time that, for example, in Europe or in North America, they had four or five months to deal with those issues. I mean, there's parts of parts of the US that doesn't even have 50% coverage. So I don't think hesitancy is unique to Africa, but I think the timing of the entire vaccination program for the world means that we now have the odds even further stacked against us in terms of trying to even get to 40 or 50% uh, coverage. The, the issue around COVAX and the, and the activism and you know, our push for transparency and accountability and civil society inclusion is, is also more pronounced and more important because COVAX has said that they obviously can't get all of the supplies and they can't get greater manufacturing support from the companies. And that a lot of countries and companies are not honoring their commitments to COVAX. So they have revise their forecast by 500 million doses. It was already a low target to start with, right? They were supposed to vaccinate 25% of vulnerable people by the end of this year. They've now reduced that to under 20% because they basically can't find even an extra 500 million doses. So COVAX is obviously going to take very long to serve the needs of Africa. Johnson & Johnson actually, I think, just is not honoring their commitments. The emergent uh, issues with the, with the plant in the U.S. has basically um, made the entire sub global supply chain for Johnson & Johnson really, really tenuous. And so the question is, which vaccines are Africa actually going to use and rely on? Yes, India has now lifted the export ban on AstraZeneca, but I think our focus then has to be on AstraZeneca, Oxford University with serum, because that's where that vaccine is coming from for many parts of Africa. And then we've got to focus on, on Pfizer and, and on Moderna. I'll just give you one example of Moderna that is pick, it picks and chooses like you're picking watermelons or you're picking fruit in a, in a, in a market. It's not acting like we're in a global pandemic, it refuses to share the technology, not participating in the WHO mRNA hub. Signs a contract with Botswana, doesn't want to sell to South Africa, but hasn't delivered a single vaccine to Botswana. And in fact, hasn't delivered a single vaccine dose to any low income country in the world. There's a New York Times uh, report on that. So, so yeah, we're up against a, a lot of, uh, a lot of negative, I think, forces that are premised on greed and on, on not, on not uh, offering solidarity. Uh, but it's going to actually take us to do the work to, to change the tide and to make sure that there's more licenses given and there's more sharing of knowledge so that we can scale up manufacturing capacity and hold our leaders to account. Thanks.
Great. Thank you so much, Fatima. And as you're talking, I was thinking of something that I think it was Peter who said that solidarity, you know, when he's talking about how solidarity has failed us, that it works in times of abundance, but tends to waver in times of of scarcity. The sad thing is right now, you know, we um, are seeing the solidarity being so pathetic. um, And you are right to remind us that we are really on our own and need to kind of bring back some of those old tactics that we used 20 years ago. Um, I think we can wrap up for the day. We're a little bit early, but that'll give people a break before they need to go on to their next meetings. Um, I really want to thank Cameron FIFA for taking the time to be with us today. I, can, I know that you all are super, super busy, so we really appreciate it. Fatima and the Health Justice Initiative Thank you for leading the charge with this series of three webinars. Everybody, please check your Twitter feeds um, for Health Justice Initiative, um, African Alliance, and um, People's Health Movement. You will see the upcoming webinars, one at the end of this month on divides, one in November about solidarity. Please come back so we can keep the conversation going. We really appreciate all of you logging in as well today. I know that people are sort of Zoomed out, so we appreciate you. And as I said, I really recommend the Twitter feeds from FIFA and Fatima Kamran. I'm assuming you're on Twitter as well. And I bet that your Twitter feed is also amazing. I just have not seen it, but I will be following you shortly. Um, it's That's really great. lovely to, to meet you. And yeah, if, if unless you have any final comments to make, I think we can wrap up for the day. Kamran, I see your mic is off. Any final yeah, thoughts? No, I just want to say thank you very much. And actually, sorry, I've, I've always got something else to say. Um, I think this speaks very much about the nature of democracies and the nature because if we were to say the problem of the leaders, then the bigger problem is how we put them in, how they got into power and how they stay in power. And that is a challenge for the UK, for the US, countries across Africa, across the world. And something's not right. It need, that needs to be fixed. Thank Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Thank you. And we Thank also you. need to join forces to make sure that Man- Matt Hancock does not get this yeah, position. Of course. <laughs> so we need to do that as well. But yeah. As a, as a sort of naturalized uh, sort of Britain, I want to apologize profoundly to the whole of Africa that we're now <laughs> inflicting Matt Hancock upon you. I think he means well, but he doesn't know the damage he's causing in the process. Yeah. No, yeah. I mean, his, his appointment... <laughs> I really think that's something we have to do in Africa. We yeah. have to mobilize everybody, academics, researchers, activists, the lot of us in the next 48 hours to make sure they withdraw that appointment. And mm. I mean, the irony is that they impose somebody, the country that imposed a red list on Africa is imposing their former disgraced health minister who messed up their own pandemic. I mean, this is this is yeah. like racism 101. Yeah. Yeah. It's so wrong on so many levels. Yeah. I mean, while, while we're on that, I mean, he showed utter disregard for, I mean, if we're thinking about what he did in his own country, utter disregard for the, the impact that the pandemic was having on ethnic minorities. So he doesn't have a good track record, any track record uh, on, on addressing inequalities and equity. And, um, you know, uh, Boris Johnson's advisor, Dominic Cummings, who, you know, has his own agenda, but he did say, speaking to a parliamentary committee, that Matt Hancock should have been fired on at least 15 occasions. Um, <laughs> I think we got fed up of documenting the mistakes he was making in the BMJ. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think if there's something you can do about it, it should be done. And the question, how did he even get that position? It's, yeah. it's, it's just, it just beggars belief. Yes, yeah. absolutely. So that's that's another Twitter storm there, Fatima. That that we need to get we need yeah. to get on. Well, actually, can I? I can offer a live live commission. I mean, Fatima, write us something on this. 
there you go you know there you go yeah tell we have, us why we have africa doesn't want hancock yeah we're gonna we, we're gonna red card hancock that's we, we need to <laughs> we need to put him on our own red list exactly yeah. exactly fifa any last words from you no, along the same lines, Matty needs to stay home for sure. Uh, definitely, Tian, we, we definitely need to stay, stay home. But but yeah, I mean, I, I think there needs to be um, greater funding of the decolonization movement because without that, we don't get our deliverables on health. And uh, it, it's incredibly important. Definitely. Thank you so much. Please come back for the next two seminars, next two webinars. And we really appreciate all of you. Follow us on Twitter. Bye, everyone. <laughs>